You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender non-conforming people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on Wurundjeri country of the Kulin Nations and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Iris Lee. This week, we turn our ears to two areas long abandoned by governments in Australia, now facing more dire consequences during the coronavirus pandemic. First, we hear about struggles inside prison to free people inside as worries grow about virus outbreaks inside and some of the politics towards a world beyond prisons. Later in the program, we take a look at housing justice organising, supporting precarious renters in a time where countless have lost their sources of income. Up first, we hear from Tabitha Lean, a Gunda Chamara woman living on Kerner country in so-called South Australia. She's also a formerly incarcerated person and vocal advocate for incarcerated people. This interview previously aired on 3CR Thursday Breakfast with Priya Kunjan, on the 23rd of July. Priya starts by asking Tabitha about concerns about recent coronavirus outbreaks in prisons. Certainly, and you're right, we warned of this. We lobbied to free people. Many of us prepared and proposed detailed decarceration plans, but we had not one compassionate or preventative release in this country. In my view, that speaks volumes about the disposability of human lives behind bars. The reality is prisons like cruise ships are vectors for infectious diseases. And what we know about the population inside is that we are a vulnerable population just based on who we are and where we're located. People in prison have a much older health age and the health problems we face are substantial. So what we know is that being in prison during a pandemic could be literally what brings the death penalty back in this country. So I'm extremely concerned about it. I'm concerned because I think prisons and other custodial settings are an integral part of the public health response. And the fact that we've now seen COVID, well, actually, what we have is two confirmed cases. I suspect that there are other cases. I suspect that some people aren't being tested as well. There's no transparency across this, and it might sound a little conspiracy theory, but I believe this is actually really probably just the tip of the iceberg. But the reality is we have these two confirmed cases, and right now I think governments across this country should be moving to release people. So there are there are ways that we could be doing this. There's you know there's um we could be releasing people onto early parole. We could be releasing people onto home detention. We should be immediately releasing all young people into houses where that's appropriate. Um, we should be releasing elderly and the pregnant. And I mean I I'm pro releasing everyone, but I accept that there needs to be a staged approach to this. But certainly I couldn't imagine being in prison during a pandemic and the fear that they must be feeling knowing that prison health is in, in is inadequate normally to handle um, chronic health conditions, let alone during a pandemic. Women on the line. We pick up further in a conversation with Priya, asking Tabitha about the Black Lives Matter movement. Thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement and what's happening now and thinking about Aboriginal people's access to healthcare within the carceral system is already so compromised by you know, 
settler colonialism, white supremacy, and the way that that impacts on people's access to healthcare. Um, so maybe we can turn to talking specifically about how this is uh, impacting upon Aboriginal people who are currently incarcerated, but also how Aboriginal community members outside are kind of working to advocate um, on on behalf of people that are that are still inside. Mm. Look, I think um, I think we're at a crucible moment within the movement. I think abolition has become the preeminent demand of the movement. I don't think we are new to the work on abolition. Certainly Aboriginal people have been fighting the carceral system for 232 years, but we are true to this movement. I think um, for me, I am solely focused on abolition as a vision of liberation for our people in this country. I think the goal of eliminating prisons, policing and surveillance is an opportunity for us to radically reimagine a future free of prisons and punishment. I think that is the only way to stop black lives being taken in custody. I, I can't see a way that we can cut the corners of the system. We have been, this system has been subject to so many reforms over hundreds of years and we're not seeing systems change. We still have an anti-black, racist, misogynist, transphobic system which is killing people. So I think that we need to dismantle the policies, practices and institutions that make people disposable. Something I talk about, it's my Twitter, Twitter handle as well, Disposable Human, is that in this society, right across the world, we create people who are disposable. We say right now, people aren't safe enough to be in the community, so we're going to dispose of them into prisons. In our schools, we say to some children, you're not okay, we can't have you in the school because of your behaviour, so we dispose of them by expelling them. I, I, I kind of think that abolition is a movement about love. It's about saying that no one is disposable, no one is a non-person, everyone has value. It's about how we, we work to create safe and good relationships with each other that means we can go forward. But we've really internalised this kind of punitive system where we think that the only way to get justice is by imposing the same sort of pain onto the person who's perpetrated that pain. It's just, it's cruelty and it's not working. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, it's really important to sort of harness the momentum that's been building up around abolition and around actually having serious conversations about what it means to defund the police, what it means to move away from systems of incarceration. So you used the word decarceration earlier on um, in the conversation. And for listeners who aren't quite familiar with that, could you maybe define that term and explain a little bit about what that might mean in the Australian context? So for me, I see decarceration as literally the opposite of incarceration. I think it, we could look at it quite simply as that instead of incarcerating people, we need to free the people we've got now. We need to free ourselves as a society to reimagine what justice looks like. Right now, justice looks like taking someone to court and locking them away. That, that doesn't feel like justice to me. So decarceration for me is about imagining it. Well, I mean, I think it's about dis dismantling systems that currently are not serving us and reimagining what justice looks like. And, and the thing is, people always say to me, like as an abolitionist, well, then what's the alternative? 
What, you know, what, what are you going to replace police with? What are you going to replace prisoners with? And I think that's the wrong place to start that conversation because I don't think that after we decarcerate that we're going to just replace systems. So there's been some talk about replacing police with social workers. We're not talking about just taking one oppressive institution and replacing it with another. The whole idea of decarcerating and abolition is to start to get really imaginative about what we want to see the future look like. I think Aboriginal people have a little bit easier um, time of imagining this because we remember we can carry within our genetic material times past where we existed before police and prisons and incarceration. I think that we are the, the solutions for all of this is found at the margins, and given we sit at the margins, <laughs> I think the solutions sit with us. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, this this came up um, in a conversation at a Black Lives Matter seminar that um, was held last week at the Melbourne Law School. And Amanda Porter said something quite similar to that. It was just that you know, prisons haven't actually been around for a very long time in this country when we think about it. That's a that's a colonial innovation that, that came in with the advent of colonization. Um, so of course there's so much potential to to move towards something different rather than looking to replace. Um, so one one last sort of question on this, um, and this is sort of throwing in that curveball that everybody likes to to throw in about trying to draw a distinction between violent and nonviolent offenders. I'm saying offenders in, in, in the in the parlance of people who make these arguments um, when considering things like prioritization of release during COVID-19 and what's so problematic about that kind of argument. I it upsets me when people make these distinctions, but I think as a society we're really good at establishing these binaries, you know, good, bad, violent, non-violent, white-collar, blue-collar, high-risk, low-risk. We need to stop legitimising incarceration for one group while advocating against it for another. It's not helpful and it divides us. And even as someone who has a criminal record, I never announce myself as being a non-violent offender or a white-collar offender. I don't want to be separated from my brothers and sisters inside. So the goal of abolition is not to identify the good, bar, the good guys or the people who don't deserve to be in prison. It is at all times to reject the logic and practice of criminalisation overall. Because what criminalisation does, it says that an enormous number of black people, poor people, people with illness must be sequestered away into punishment chambers in order for us all to be safe. That's that creation of disposable people. And when we use that binary of non-violent, violent, we're saying that one group, that one group deserves more humanity than the other. And I can't understand how we would be okay with that. The other thing is I suspect the call to release non-violent or low-risk people is a well-intentioned demand because it seemingly asks for little. But I think that we should not just ask what we think people in power are likely to grant. That shouldn't be the basis of our demand. So we, we can't start off with that question of what do we think we can get. We should go, what do we want to see and let's push for that. Um, and I think about not pre-compromising yourself, making no compromises in here because you're, you, you're not making compromises that don't have an impact. We're actually com compromising people's lives and I don't think any of us have the ability to do that or right to do that. So I think we can't, we can't let our vision of freedom be constrained by the, 
the people who make freedom seem impossible, if that makes sense. We, we need to decide what we want and what we want to see and what we think is humane and what represents humanity and go for that and bring people along on the journey, make space for people in this movement. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a really powerful message to, to actually um, be more expansive in, in what we're asking for and, and reach for what we want rather than creating policy problems that we then have to fix later down the line when we realise that the reform wasn't good enough. Um, so is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to raise before we wrap up? Well, I want to say the other thing um, about abolition work is about looking within yourself, around you and beyond you and working to even abolish systems within yourself and in your life that are colonial or oppressive. I think abolition work starts at home. It's about how we spend our time and how we police ourselves and others. So whilst my focus is entirely on the state and abolishing that system, I'm also really starting to look in terms of my own life and would encourage other people to as well on how you can use those abolition principles that are really grounded in love and respect and care for other people in your own life as well. Because I think if we start at home, we can make it more broadly out into community. You were listening to Tabitha Lean, a Gunnachamara woman living on Kerner country. She's also a formerly incarcerated person and vocal advocate for incarcerated people. Thanks to Priya Kunjan from 3CR Thursday Breakfast for that interview. Across these stolen lands now called Australia, you've been listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices, broadcast on the Community Radio Network. Next up, we turn to housing in these uncertain times. The Renters and Housing Union Victoria are a newly formed group organised around people in precarious housing. We hear from member Rini Salidas Noyce. I start off by asking Rini about the formation of the Renters and Housing Union. At the start of the crisis uh, in March, um, there was a call to uh, rent strike and a pledge to withhold rental payments and mortgage payments for the length of the pandemic. And, um, yeah, I guess through through that rent strike that was both national and international, lots of renters in Victoria, particularly in the northern suburbs, started to organise together and um, voted to unionise our efforts in May. Um, so we held votes in each region across the state, but mainly in, like, central Melbourne areas um, and have been pushing to extend and amend um, the eviction moratorium and the legislation at the moment and um, basically with a longer aim to sort of flip the balance of power um, that's much needed for renters against landlords and agents. Mm. So what were some of the learnings you got from the initial rent strike, so-called a stop paying rent to landlords, and some of the challenges you faced that led you to forming the union? Yeah, there were quite a few challenges. I think there were some huge positives in seeing the issue of rent and hardship um, so exposed and so, like, in the spotlight. Um, so the positives that came out of that was were, were really huge and felt quite widely. Um, I think, you know, we had, like, over 15,000 people commit to withholding payments um, within the first couple of weeks of the pledge going out. And some of the issues we started to see um, 
was once the federal government announced the moratorium, it became state legislation's responsibility to actually enact measures. Um, so we kind of started to see a bit of a divide um, happening from government to each particular state. And so renters were affected in different ways and with different legislation. But also it meant that um, renters who were striking in solidarity were, were unable to, like, feel confident in continuing to strike with those who couldn't afford to pay, um, which was, yeah, a pretty huge challenge to the broad strike itself. Mm. So in terms of the renters and housing union, um, what are some of, so could you talk further about some more of the demands that you're talking about putting forward and organising around? Yeah, I mean, the demands we have currently are somewhat essentially the same as they were during the strike. Um, we never saw a full rent amnesty enacted, um, either in Victoria or nationally. So we're still calling for rental amnesty, um, particularly for people in hardship, which is just a growing, growing number. Um, and, you know, that's a huge reason we're seeing a second wave um, of cases, particularly in Victoria, because people are still having to go to work in order to make rent. So our demands uh, are still for a rent amnesty and um, an extension and further amendment to the eviction moratorium um, for at least 12 months in order to properly research the um, effects and impacts that um, evictions would have on people, particularly in low incomes and, and yeah, insecure work. Mm. Um, <clears throat> also with the legislation, um, the Victorian government posed this idea that partnerships in good faith could be established between renters and landlords, which, you know, we still believe is laughable. Women on the line. Could you talk further about the limitations around the Victorian government's pandemic measures and how they're leaving so many renters behind? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot... Um, a lot of the measures that the Victorian government have made in regards to COVID-19 have been of a focus on um, kind of policing our way through the pandemic. And it's more than just like, you know, the carrot on the stick, it's essentially just a stick. And for a lot of people in low income and precarity who are like very close to homelessness uh, currently or are at very close risk to homelessness due to like financial inability to afford rent. Um, the government's, yeah, basically put it, put the pressure on them to try and get what they need currently. And I think agents are exploiting that um, because those who've tried to negotiate reductions are now facing like insurmountable debt that's been deferred instead of reduced um, and, you know, retaliation from landlords by claiming against the bond and um, charging for excessive fees that 
are not maintenance, they're actually renovations. Like, for example, someone who has been charged a huge fee for replacing the varnish on all of the floorboards in their house um, and that person successfully negotiated the small reduction. So there's some issues there that I think um, the government may have not considered in writing the legislation they have. But further, it's also an issue for low-income um, demographics in general when it comes to the pandemic because the issues around work and needing to um, afford rent has, like, put so many more people at risk to contracting corona. And what the government's measures have been to respond to that is to make further stick measures and police them um, rather than offer preventative incentives to people. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, to pick up the policing the pandemic point, we saw the Victorian Andrews ALP government turn public housing into a form of detention earlier in the month. Um, at this, and on the 28th of July, they have released a media release saying they're supporting houseless people with a homelessness to home package. Mm. How, how do you think about these two things and does how does that look on the ground in terms of how things are playing out with the Andrews government? Yeah, it's, it's a pretty interesting thing to see currently. I think the housing lockdown and the government's irresponsible um, response to that um, was incredibly dangerous and, um, yeah, absolutely incar- it, it was carceral. And, you know, Rahu st- stood by uh, the residents in lockdown and their demands and helped with coordinating much needed like essential items and stuff during that period. I think, you know, to talk about public housing and the like general neglect of that by the government is a long story and it predates 2017, but it does have ties as far back as that in terms of it stopping funding public housing and instead funneling money into privatised versions of what's called social housing. Um, and I think, yeah, the issue of the, of the lockdown and how much that was just a, an incredibly lacking response, um, is, yeah, indicative of how much they've neglected public housing and residents that live in public housing for a long time. I think, you know, by offering a small amount of money to both public and social housing in this recent statement is an attempt to address that superficially. In terms of just touching again on the end of the Victorian government's measures, like the moratorium on eviction, it's September 28th. Uh, first, what do you, like, has there still been evictions? Because there are some exceptions to that. And second, what sort of devastation are we looking at if that's not extended? Totally. It's a huge issue. And yeah, we've got basically a very short timeline in which to extend it and, and amend it. I think um, it's it's also a complex issue in terms of trying to document or like give any stats whatsoever about just how many people have been left out of that moratorium. Um, because not only are there 
particular sections where people can still, like landlords can still evict tenants on certain grounds, um, that is being exploited more recently. But we're also, like, seeing people who were evicted illegally in informal tenancies, particularly with, like, international students and temporary visa holders um, that basically left en masse in April, whether they were, like, physically pushed out or, like, extremely threatened um, by their agent or landlord. And it's really difficult to measure just how much of an impact um, that first wave had on so many people without the moratorium or with the moratorium. So there's that issue, but then there's also the issue of people being afraid to negotiate a reduction because they're going to face retaliation come September. So there are a lot of people who left, like, before negotiating reduction or instead of negotiating one um, because of the retaliation they could face. So in in those senses, like, even those cases are people who, if they were afforded a reduction that was significant enough for them to stay in their home, they would have been able to do that, but they've left instead, which is not exactly an eviction, but it's being forcibly, like having to be forced to be removed um, to find a new location that you actually could afford potentially. And when September comes, we're going to see all of any protections potentially completely disappearing and and that's a, a huge concern to us because a lot of the time people haven't received reductions, they've received deferrals and agents have pretended that they're actually a reduction. So, yeah, all of that debt will amount all at once for many people um, in a completely unrealistic timeline and all due on the one day as soon as the moratorium lifts and landlords and agents are just waiting to send out mass eviction notices. Um, and, yeah, we have peak bodies like the Real Estate Institute of Victoria and the REIA uh, who are lobbying this whole time throughout the pandemic to make sure that the moratorium only goes until September, right at the same time when job seeker and JobKeeper will be cut. So we've got a huge a huge um, task ahead of us. You are listening to Rini Salidas Noyce, member of the Renters and Housing Union Victoria. You can find more about them or get involved on their social media accounts and at their website rahu.org.au. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne on Kulin Nation's land and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded at www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. We'd love to hear your comments or thoughts about the program, so please send an email to womenontheline at gmail.com or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 You can also follow us on our social media on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. The theme music for Women on the Line was produced by Ripley Kavara. I'm Iris Lee. 
tune in to Living on the Line next week on your community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.